I didn't know most of what was happening in the outside world, but knowing that so many Canadians and others were aware of our situation and sending messages of support uh, really meant a lot to us. So thank you. That was Michael Koverig speaking from his family home this weekend. As you know, both Michaels are back on Canadian soil. What does this mean, though, as far as the future and how things have unfolded? Let's bring back Richard Curland, immigration lawyer and policy analyst. Thank you so much for joining us again. A pleasure. Well, you were not too, too far off when you, uh, <laughs> when you told us on Friday how you expected things to unfold. What, w- what was going through your mind when you saw that, heard the news that not only was Meng Wanzhou in the air going back to China, but the two Michaels were on their way home? Well, going through my mind was the Jill Bennett show was the only show in Canada to get it right <laughs> in terms of timing. Every other expert in this country, including foreign policy retired officials, said months if not longer. And uh, I think we uh, got it. So the next thing is uh, rapprochement. Uh, For myself, um, I still do not see the government of Canada extending post-traumatic stress syndrome treatment immediately to the two Michaels. I don't know what they're waiting for. Leaving that aside, uh, Canada and China are going to respectively uh, get back in the saddle and uh, initiate um, a rapprochement on trade first, in the agricultural sector is the priority, to be followed by an array of uh, goods and services. Uh, thanks to President Biden, uh, this was fixed. Uh, I'm, I'm still curious and churning about the timing. Had this been done a week earlier, in the midst of the federal election, uh, Mr. Trudeau may have obtained his majority government with the uh, photo tarmac handshake kiss routine. Uh, So if it's good enough for the prime minister to get on a plane to Calgary for a photo op, let him spring for the PTSD treatment. (laughs) You get what you pay for. Uh, So I am optimistic on uh, the uh, new relationship that Canada is going to uh, foster and develop with China. Uh, There's willingness on both sides of the Pacific. What do you think about the timing? Because we discussed that. You even said, and I was skeptical at the time when you said you thought that during the election campaign there was going to be, or there was a good chance there was going to be that magical photo of Justin Trudeau welcoming the Michaels on that tarmac. Was it just a question of the timing Mm. was off? Mm, I don't think it was off by a nanosecond. Um, Greater minds uh, than ours, Jill, uh, were on this one, and the control button was in Washington, not Ottawa. And so someone at State, State Department, may have made the executive decision to hold off a week after the election finishes. Uh, And it's a wise political decision on the part of Washington, because what if... Washington gave um, uh, our Prime Minister that invaluable photo op to snag a handful of additional writings, and uh, it, it didn't pay off. You would have a conservative regime who, with a nice memory, would recall that uh, Washington tried to help uh, the political adversary. So, wise move on Washington to do nothing during our federal election.
What does this do now? You you kind of mentioned this as far as the relationship between China and Canada and also the relationship when we look at what the United States is doing. It feels mm. kind of like the United States is, is leaving Canada behind. Not really. Mm. We're not really factoring in when it comes to foreign policy and the tough stance that we're seeing coming from the United States and some other countries. Well, I, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I, I, I would never forget that the current vice president of the United States of America grew up in Montreal. And don't underestimate the value of that when you can rub elbows with the president of the United States virtually at will, and you can access the key decision makers at the highest levels of the United States government. Uh, a person who grew up in Canada is an invaluable asset to this country. Uh, so I think that bodes well. Uh, uh, President Biden has now made it up to Canada to relieve us of our number one anxiety priority. Uh, and uh, over many, many decades, our best bud is south of the border, globally. And that relationship will only improve over time. Uh, the damage that former President Trump did to the Canada-U.S. relationship is astounding. Uh, he's gone. Uh, and uh, it's now going to be business as usual with, uh, I hate to use the word sunny days because <laughs> it, it's not appropriate, but we will strengthen and nurture uh, the United States-Canada relationship in trade in every sector. Uh, China, by doing what China did, only pushed the allies closer together. That's the bottom line out of this episode. But but how will it factor in, do you think, then, or, or does Canada then need to be careful on, on how we deal with China moving forward? Well, I think uh, now that the irritant has gone, moving forward, everyone wants the same thing on both sides of the Pacific, money. We have to grow our economies uh, out of this uh, COVID tragedy. The only way you can do that is to increase trade between nations. And to do that, everyone has to play nice, and we, we move back to our esteemed positions uh, pre, uh, pre-arrest of Ms. Meng. Uh, and um, you'll see it. You're going to see it soon. Just uh, circle the calendar the day you hear the word Bethune, Norman Bethune again, because that's usually the signal from Canada to kiss and make up. Uh, uh, Bethune is the hallmark in the uh, mainland China education system, uh, teaching uh, mainlanders uh, about selflessness. So uh, we're going to play that card again. And I have my eye on Ms. Meng. I have my eye on Ms. Meng now because, you know, historically, uh, some of the best and brightest global leaders uh, have been detained or incarcerated for relative periods of time. Now she fits the bill. She's got a national persona. She's getting mega media star treatment across the entire PRC, as well as other parts in the world. So uh, over the years to come, if you're going to bet long, I bet on her. Mm-hmm. And so we have to also try to, uh, in some way over time, uh, restore comfort with Canada, with Ms. Meng and her family. It's a, it's a high-level task. I'm not uh, wildly optimistic it can be done, but it sure is worth a try given the potential payback to Canada.
And what are your thoughts? I meant to ask you this right off the top as well. With China coming out saying, uh, still maintaining that these two cases are not linked and that the Michaels were released for health reasons. Well, it reminded me of the old adage uh, concerning diplomats. Diplomats. Diplomats are patriots sent overseas to lie for their country. And this this fits the bill. I, I did a, uh, a segment with... Um, uh, Chinese state television, and uh, the, the, the point came up, and on air they said, and of course, uh, the release of two Michaels is not linked to the release of Ms. Meng. Mm-hmm. I just let uh, the sound trickle. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's their position. It's a position. Uh, no one wants to, quote-unquote, lose face, so why go there? Now we have to look forward. It's uh, no longer time for the rearview mirror. We have to look ahead on the road uh, that we're traveling on uh, now and in future and uh, just get back to business um, and, and try at the same time to prevent this from happening to other citizens in future of any Western country or around the world for that matter. Would you travel to China now? Yes, and and you think there? I would imagine though there will be people that that wouldn't be so quick to say yes that there there is a fear or a, a bit uh, people might wonder if it's safe. Uh, well, you know, uh, for, for it depends what you do. If you were doing what the uh, two Michaels allegedly had been doing uh, in the past, um, they were perhaps indirectly a little closer than desirable to our um, um, uh, public sector information services. Uh, So for that crowd, maybe lay off for a year. Mm -hmm. But for uh, John Q. Public or or, uh, business people, I just don't see a reasonable risk here. And I wouldn't hesitate to uh, re-enter the People's Republic at the present time. Do you really think uh, there would be an issue that would trigger a Chinese retaliation to a Canadian citizen? There's nothing on deck. Mm -hmm. Uh, Remember... Remember that when our prime minister's office dropped the ball, allowing this arrest in the first place, I don't think they had an inkling of who they were uh, arresting. It, it would be the equivalent of a Bill Gates or a Bill Gates family member uh, or, or a very popular sports uh, figure, for that matter, if you're looking at Canada. No, they miscalculated and they paid the price. So I just don't see that perfect storm arising again uh, for uh, at least uh, years to come. Well, we uh, happen to be talking about what Claire Newell was just talking about in that travel update because a lot of people have questions about mixed vaccinations, about the guidelines that are changing when it comes to travel. So let's try and get to those. And Claire has been kind enough to join us on the program once again. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. And my pleasure. This is a, a big topic at the moment uh, in conversation of people who are looking to, <laughs> to travel hopefully soon. Um, and it was la- last week on Monday, the U.S. announced that come early November, that foreign air passengers to the U.S. will have to show proof that they're fully vaccinated. And that means that it's going to be changing for us as Canadians, Jill. So up until now, we haven't needed to prove uh, vaccination to get into the U.S. You've been able to fly simply with an antigen test, and that all changes. We're not sure which date yet in November, but that is the time period.
So what does that mean, first off, and you mentioned this in the travel update, so from what I understand, the United States, even though they never actually used or approved AstraZeneca, because it's a WHO-approved vaccine, it, it will be on the list? Or do you know, how do we actually define now somebody being fully vaccinated that will get you so you can travel, you can fly into the United States once this rule comes in? Right. So at this stage of the game, um, the CDC has laid out their policy, which means um, it will consider people fully vaccinated if they have all the recommend doses of the same COVID vaccine. So if you've got two Pfizer, two Moderna, two AstraZeneca, it's even laid out there. They added just last week that mixed doses of two mRNAs are now accepted. It says exceptional situations, but um, many companies, including Royal Caribbean, Celebrity Cruise Lines, and others have now said the same thing. They go by this. So that means two mRNA would be a Pfizer-Moderna combo. So really what we're waiting for is that AstraZeneca or Covishield, which is um, the India serum, uh, AstraZeneca, to be updated. And it's a bit of a waiting game because the U.S. hasn't actually used AstraZeneca, so they don't have their own domestic data. So you can bet right now Canada is absolutely working behind the scenes to share that data with the CDC so that this can be dealt with. Now, most of Europe is actually already accepting mixed doses of AstraZeneca and mRNA because so many of their uh, countries there, including Germany, Italy, France, they all were doling out mixed vaccines to its citizens. But Canada is is a very important partner, Jill, to the U.S. We're talking about lots of tourism dollars that go down that way. So you can bet it's, you know, top of mind. I know that it's a worry. It's a worry for, for me, too. I, I am a mixed dose like that. And I did go visit my daughter in September without having to prove that I was vaccinated to fly down there. I needed to prove it to come back to make sure I didn't have to quarantine for 14 days. But things will change for me in November. And I personally am hoping to go down there mid-November to see her again. So if the U.S. doesn't budge on mixed vaccines come November... Um, I hope that BC will come to the table because four provinces already are Quebec, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. So I really would hope that BC would offer that third vaccine to someone like me and hundreds of thousands of other people here in BC who may require it for travel. Uh, exactly, because otherwise, like you said, there are going to be millions of Canadians who got the mixed dose. And I, we've talked about this. I'm also mixed dose. I think you and I have the same ones. Yes. Uh, millions of Canadians that suddenly won't be able to go to the United States. It just seems very strange as far as even trying to plan travel. Yeah, and I, there was a, an article that I read that um, a lawyer who specializes in Canada-U.S. immigration law said that he's really optimistic and that the gut, his gut feeling was that they're going to have to resolve it. And I tend to agree with that. I wish it would come faster. But again, I did have to understand because I, I, I saw an interview with Dr. Teresa Tam talking about this and explaining that they in the U.S. have not used AstraZeneca and don't have their own domestic data the, behind it. So I, I assume that Canada is a well-trusted partner of the U.S. and that the U.S. will see the light once they see the data and that it will speak for themselves. And I'm, I am very hopeful. I really don't want to be one of the many, many, many Canadians who have this mixed dose and have a trip on the books that needs to cancel because I won't have the right vaccination combo.
Right. Is it your sense then? It's interesting, I find that, again, even though they didn't use AstraZeneca in the United States, that they've changed it. So if you're double dosed with AstraZeneca, it sounds like you'll be fine. You'll still you'll be, be able fine. to go there it come when these rules come in in November. So that's right. are you getting the impression that, that the rules might change and that the United States will allow mixed dose? Or, or is it more likely, do you think, that mixed dose, we're going to have to get that third shot? I think that, so like I say, just to clarify, mixed doses of two mRNA, so Pfizer and Moderna are already accepted and listed on the CDC. So it's just the AstraZeneca mix we're talking about. My gut is, is that they will accept it based on the science and the data that Canada shares with the U.S. government. Um, That is my hope. That is what Europe is doing. The U.K. is accepting mixed uh, Pfizer and Moderna with AstraZeneca. Um, most of Europe is as well. So let's just hope that the U.S. sees that data, um, not just from us, maybe from some of the European nations that have also done this, like Germany, Italy, and France, uh, and they see that that the CDC realizes that this is a great combination. It's um, it's shown great efficacy in in preventing COVID nineteen. But, you know, what's crazy is that we haven't even had to show it a proof of vaccination until now. So now they need it. Now people like me and you may not be able to go. I think it's a very slim chance we won't be able to go quite per. Quite frankly, if I was a vet and gal, <laughs> that that is good news. But I think, I, and you must be getting a lot of questions. So people uh, that again want to book, say mid November, are looking to book Christmas. Maybe they have family in the states that are now uh, a bit hesitant on whether Absolutely. or not they should. Yeah, we've got lots of people who a, a lot of the the um, trips that people have on the books, particularly for November when the weather starts to turn and for the holidays, and their final payments are coming up. So they can change it up to, say, 25 days or so, but they're worried about putting down their final payment if, in fact, they may not be able to travel there, which would be such a shame. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Are you seeing people booking and getting back into it and looking forward to even, I would imagine, if we look past Christmas, which isn't that far away, going into (laughs) into the summer months, are you seeing things pick up? Yeah, there's a, a lot more going on the books for 2022. The things that are um, happening immediately are people, a lot of people who want to visit friends and family and uh, who are now able to. Um, but there are, there's slowly becoming more interest in the sun destinations as the weather really cools off here. And people are become, I guess they're, they're starting to hear other people coming back. Like I came back from my Arizona trip saying, I can't wait for my next trip to go on the books. There's those people. We said that this will be the, the, the case. There'll be those early adopters who will go as soon as they're vaccinated. Then there will be the people who wait for others to come back. And yeah, I had a good time and I, I didn't get sick. And there will be still others who will wait well into 2022 before they feel comfortable traveling. I mean, we're not leaving COVID behind. And so there's so many protocols that you still have to keep in mind when you're traveling. There's testing that they were required in both directions, which is an added cost, all still hurdles for a lot of people to be able to kind of make that leap to actually travel. Right, because that's another thing, even with the the protocols I know changing in the States, it's my understanding, it's also not only fully vaccinated, but you'll still have to do the testing as well, won't you? You will not only have to do an antigen test uh, before you fly, you'll also have to do one between day three and five. So there's, there's, uh, 
two additional hoops that Canadians may have to go through, an additional test as well as proof of vaccination. All right. But Lisa, I get the sense from you, Claire, that there is some optimism that hopefully, and I think Teresa Tam, Dr. Tam has said this too, that they are sharing information with the United States and and there are discussions being had on this to, to try and come to some resolution. Yeah, and let's just hope that we get answers sooner rather than later. I know that the... Um, the, the early November timeline was put in place simply to allow any stakeholders, so um, the, the the countries to work out these types of things, which vaccinations are going to be accepted, the airlines to actually get aircraft into circulation again, and the border uh, controls so that they can get all of those measures ready to go. Uh, it's, you know, all in line, and we still don't have the exact date, but we we know it will be early November. Thanks for being with us. Well, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has crunched some of the numbers, taking a look at MPs who lost their seats or stood down before the last election, the one we just had, and is taking a look at just how much they are going to get when it comes to pensions and severance money. And let's talk more about that. Chris Sims is the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank for having us. I know you do this, I think, every time there's an election. Uh, So what are we looking at as far as numbers here? Uh, They're pretty heavy-duty numbers. Uh, So to give you an example, about $3.3 million just in severance checks are going to be uh, issued to former members of Parliament and defeated or retiring MPs, so even those who didn't uh, face re-election. They're going to be collecting cumulatively about $1.4 million in annual pension payments. And so if you add that up, uh, so by age 90, Sometimes it's $42 million by the age of 90. So if you actually go to our website and look at our news release, uh, our team in Ottawa has actually broken it down MP by MP. Because, of course, uh, to qualify for your pension as a member of parliament, you now have to serve six years. That's the minimum. And so some of the folks uh, who were defeated last time around, they actually don't get a pension. But most of them still get a form of a severance. Right. And yeah. were you were you surprised by these numbers or how uh, how things have worked out in this case? I think a lot of people are surprised by just how much money it actually is. So when you actually take a look and like not to pick on him on as a person, uh, Wayne Easter is a longtime member of parliament. His annual pension is going to be one hundred and thirty eight thousand dollars. So that's a lot of money for any one person in the retirement years to be making in a pension. And I think even for professional Canadians, uh, maybe people who have workplace pensions, that's a lot of money. It's nowhere near uh, the dollar-for-dollar format or the RRSP contribution-type format that most of us do manage to get through our employers. And then also, of course, many workers don't have any pension plan through their employers at all. So I think one hundred and thirty-eight grand a year, uh, which is one of the top ones here on the list, I think that's too rich for a lot of people's blood. And so that's what we're calling for reform. We would like to see them go to more of an RRSP-based pension system so that it's more comparable to the average working Canadians that they represent. And it's not so gold-plated. And we've seen calls for reform in the past. What is the reason given as as to why this is such a a lovely formula, if you're on the receiving end of it, why it is so different from what we see in other areas? 
Great question. So quite often, uh, if I put the shoe on the other foot, a member of parliament who's defending a big gold-plated pension, and we have seen pension reform. It has improved. It's just not great yet in Ottawa. So for them to defend it, they would say something like, oh, well, we, um, for example, we fly a lot or we travel a lot. We put in a lot of hours. If you want to attract good people to this job, uh, you have to be able to pay them well. And to that, we would say, we do attract quite often good people to this job. Uh, but then if you turn that around, you're saying that the average working Canadian isn't good people <laughs> unless they're being paid more than $100,000 a year in pension. And so we think that there's a good middle ground. We think that there is an ability to pay them a fair pension that's perhaps more based on a dollar-for-dollar dollar contribution rate. So for every dollar you put in, your employer, us, the taxpayer, we put in a dollar. And then they start collecting that after age 65. Um, we think that's reasonable uh, and they shouldn't sneeze at it. And we think that they can still attract good people to that role because keep in mind that these folks are already paid more than 100 grand a year for their salary. All their travel is paid for. They get huge housing allowances. They even get per diem for meals when they're in Ottawa. So even when they're living in Ottawa at their little apartments, they'll still get per diems for meals in Ottawa. They don't need to be on the road or in a plane to get that pay. And they're making enormous connections in their, in their political and career-wise. So they're really, gar- they're really garnishing their CVs. They're, they're not hurting being a member of parliament. And so we think it is fair for them to reform the, the pension system here. What about the part of the system that even if you were to make that argument and defend the pension and the, the severance costs, what about when we're talking about MPs that, say, step down in disgrace or or lose their, their job that way. It's not that they are voted out, but for various reasons have to step down. Do they qualify or they get the same thing? Uh, I believe that there were changes to that. I can't recall, actually, if it was at the federal level or at one provincial level, but I do recall that there was reform made so that if you were convicted of a crime, that you were no longer eligible for your pension. So I'll have to check with you to see if that was Ottawa I think that might have just been Alberta, though. I will check, uh, but there was some provision for that. That should be a no-brainer. I mean, if you're convicted of a crime and it was definitely connected to your job in most of these cases, so if it were, say, fraud breach of trust, something like that, yeah, you shouldn't be collecting a gold-plated taxpayer pension. And further to that, um, the other element that we're asking for here is a lot of people forget that these members of parliament got two pay raises in the middle of the pandemic. So while a lot of us were taking a haircut, we had salary cuts, those of us who kept our jobs, a lot of us lost our jobs, the MPs unfortunately gave themselves a raise. And they're pretty singular for that. Uh, So, for example, city councillors in Burnaby, they took a pay cut. Uh, Lots of other uh, public uh, employees got a pay cut or at least a pay freeze. So we would like to see them reverse that pay increase. So we really think that this is fair, what we're asking for here. So we would like them to get rid of this massive severance. So, for example, Will Amos, uh, he's a member of parliament for the Pontiac region of Quebec. Uh, He doesn't get a pension because he didn't serve uh, six years, but he does get a severance of $92,000. So that's, that's a hundred grand kiss goodbye courtesy of the taxpayer. Um, and I think this is something that goes under the radar because we only talk about it once it, we finished our election. Right. Uh, some might argue that Will Amos could maybe make better use of a clothing allowance, but that's, 
a whole other topic. I right recommend there. pants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that is the difference, not to make light of this, no, no, but, but that, that is the difference. And I, I think also there was the, the issue of Raj Saini uh, came sure. up. He, he walked away. He stepped down facing allegations that he harassed staff members or a female staff member. He denies the allegation, but did step down. His name was still on the ballot in his Ontario riding. But he also gets, I think, the $93,000 severance after after stepping down in those conditions. That's a great point. But see, then you start getting into gray areas. Does it have to be an allegation? And do they have to step down? Or do they? does it have to be a conviction? And then it's reversed? So that we'd have to really look at. That would be something that they would have to seriously consider as to whether or not an allegation would be enough or would it have to be a conviction. Well, we think if we need to start at really the business end of the horse here, and that is reducing the amount of money that they get for a pension, no matter how awesome of a job they've done. So it should at least be a contribution-based system like we have with RRSPs, and they need to get rid of these severances uh, for the members of parliament. We think that's really only fair because they are supposed to be representing the common people. That's literally why it's called the House of Commons. And I think if they don't do this, this just breeds more mistrust, right? I think a lot of people, I'll put it this way, I don't know anybody who's happy with the election results. Even if you're a hardcore, card-carrying liberal, conservative, People's Party, whatever, everybody's kind of disheartened and grumpy over this. And I think when they see these big golden parachutes, it just makes it worse. Uh, David Aiken, who's a global journalist in Ottawa, he tweeted out earlier today uh, saying he counted up the numbers. He said, we have 52 MPs in the 44th Parliament who were not in the 43rd Parliament, and 50 of those are first-time MPs. And I know, uh, looking at the numbers as well, and you touched on this, that calling this election, the, that having Justin Trudeau call this election this at this point in, in the mandate, it did cut the timing as far as the number of MPs who would have qualified for pensions, and so instead are getting severance. Does that Did that somehow make the... I, I realize we also spent $600 million on the election, but did that calling it early make that number smaller in that not as many people got pensions? Yeah, not as many people got pensions. And you're right, if you if you stretch it out, it depends on how you do the calculation, right? Because then it starts adding up as how many years post six that you've served. So for example, let me see here, uh, Jeff Regan, he's a longtime member of parliament in Nova Scotia. He's going to be making more than $147,000 per year. But that's because he was in for so long. So whereas a cabinet minister that was only in for, say, seven years, they won't be making nearly as much, even though their pay was higher. So it depends on how you slice it. So if you do the math and you figure, well, for every $100,000 of severance, the corresponding person also doesn't get a pension. I think you'd still come out saving money with the, with the severances rather than the pensions, because it also depends, not to be indelicate, depends for how long these folks are with us. Uh, we calculated up to age 90. So we think that's fair uh, to look at that age age restriction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, great point. If you take a look at the list that we have on our website, there's a lot of goose eggs there, for so meaning no, no pension. And a lot of those folks are liberal members of parliament who will be leaving the House of Commons without any pension whatsoever. 
We are going to talk a little bit now about what could be coming to some Vancouver parks. This is in response to the attacks involving coyotes in Stanley Park. As you know, several coyotes were trapped and euthanized after more than 40 attacks on humans. Would having tougher penalties for feeding wildlife make a difference? Coming up a bit later this half hour, we are going to check in with a park board commissioner as they are discussing this and set to vote on this idea later tonight. Right now, though, let's bring on Nadia Zanakis, Urban Wildlife Programs Coordinator with the Stanley Park Ecology Society. Nadia, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. How are things going now? That We had that call, I think it was 11 coyotes that were euthanized from the park. Mm-hmm. The park has reopened. How are things going there? Uh, there's been a lot of work on the back end of things um, to get projects off the ground. Um, and put things in place to ensure this doesn't happen again. But um, it's been quite quiet in the car- in the park lately. The weather's kind of turned a bit. Um, there seems to be a bit less traffic in the park. And do, do you think, did it work? As far as I know, there there were people that were, were reluctantly saying yes. So the coyotes that perhaps were uh, the ones that were doing the attacking, while it wasn't really anyone's first choice, the, euthan- the, the decision was made to euthanize them. Do you think that in the long run that will make a difference? Yeah, I think we can't really know for sure, uh, just because we didn't have enough information about the coyotes that did commit the attacks. Um, but so far, there hasn't been any aggressive incidents reported, which is really promising. I don't know what the future holds for us, but hopefully it'll stay that way. Um, and hopefully we learn how to cope with with wildlife in the park and we won't have another aggressive incident in the park. Uh, we also know that it was human behavior as far as feeding coyotes, leaving garbage in the park, leaving food in the mm-hmm. park. There were the reports of people trying to, to do that, luring them out to get selfies. Uh, do you think that this park board initiative, if it's voted on, if it's approved, it would up the fines for people who are, ca- who are caught feeding wildlife in the park? Do you think that's necessary? Absolutely. And I think the more important piece for me is that park rangers would be able to ticket for wildlife feeding. Uh, so currently only conservation officers have the ability to and they there are very few of them and they cover a huge expanse of land. So it's not possible for them to be in Stanley Park at all times. So prior to this, essentially, you could do kind of whatever you wanted into the park and there were no consequences for that action, uh, which I think is what got us here. So this is really exciting news because people can be held accountable for their actions. We can hopefully actually see a decrease in wildlife feeding. um, And I think that would greatly increase our chances at coexistence in the future. Uh, Are we seeing other changes as well as far as more signage or the garbage cans that are that are more secure that animals can't get into them? Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we did um, do more signage in the park. Uh, We are working with the park board to do a wildlife proof bin pilot um, to see how feasible it is and how expansion could work in the park. Um, So currently there are seven bins that have been placed in the park. Um, And we are hoping to create an educational video over time about wildlife feeding so people really understand why it's important not to feed wildlife and they can let other people know and spread that information. Right. We still do we know why this particular park was where we saw these problems? Was it just the number of people and the fact that this had gotten out of control? Whereas we we do see coyotes on golf courses and in other parks in the city where we're not seeing, thankfully, we're not seeing this aggressive behavior. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. It is such a large expanse of land. And there's it's a forest, essentially. So there's a lot there's a lot going on that we don't know what's happening in the park. Uh, we know that there's a lot of encroachment on habitat. We know there's a huge 
amounts of people coming into the park. It's a super populated area. Um, so I think it's a combination of kind of use of the park that it wasn't intended to be used a certain way, as well as large groups of people. It's also a tourist destination, so we have a lot of visitors coming through Stanley Park. Um, so it is a bit um, unusual compared to other more classic city parks that are smaller um, and maybe see less traffic. Right. Uh, when you talked about as well, the key here being the coexisting with coyotes, there are obviously still coyotes in that park. There will be more. Are, are you mm-hmm. concerned at all about when the population comes back, when, when we are seeing more and when the weather is a little nicer and there will be more people in the park? I'm, I'm hoping with the passing of this bylaw, that would put me at ease a bit more, um, just because we know that that is the, one of the largest contributors to this problem. So if we can kind of deal with that now, um, when we do start to repopulate, I don't suspect there will be a problem. Coyotes have lived with us for decades and decades, and you rarely see them. You can hear them at night sometimes, but it's not often you see them. And I'm hoping that if we conduct ourselves properly, that that will be the future that we see. Uh, exactly, because I think I think it, what would be I mean nobody wants to see a repeat of of what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the question is too, and we're going we're going to talk to a park board commissioner that that getting that message across, and hopefully a bigger fine is a deterrent, but also getting that message across as to why it's such a bad idea to feed wildlife, to feed any wildlife. Absolutely, um, and even you know ducks. People like to throw bread into the water for the ducks, not realizing the bread is incredibly harmful for the ducks and it's incredibly harmful for the ecosystem. Um, and I have gotten angry comments from people who say they enjoy feeding the animals; it's important to them, it's an activity. And I understand that it's just we need to prioritize, you know, the safety of the wildlife and the safety of the park and the health of the park as well. And is it your understanding then this particular bylaw, it, it, this is not a coyote specific bylaw, this is anything and that somebody, uh, your example of feeding bread to ducks, if somebody's feeding uh, raccoons or somebody's feeding uh, any wildlife, that this, these fines would, would, uh, would go to them? Yes, correct. It would be all wildlife in Stanley Park. Are there other animals that you've had a problem with or that you've seen people, you mentioned the ducks, are there others as well that people tend to feed? Raccoons is a big one. Um, So we know around Lost Lagoon that there is particularly photographers that will bait raccoons um, for photos and regularly feed them. Hmm. Um, I have gotten phone calls from someone who had their dogs attacked by raccoons who have been followed by raccoons. Uh, Raccoons can be very vicious. I would not want to be bitten by one or attacked by one. Um, They are cute animals. I understand that. But there's a lot of feeding of raccoons and it it can get turned into a situation similar to the coyotes if it's not dealt with. Um, so I think this bylaw will really help deal with the raccoons as well. It sounds like this this bylaw or this improved or upped enforcement and such, it sounds like it's long overdue. Yeah, I mean, it's not common in municipalities currently. Um, so I think moving forward just as a society with how we coexist with wildlife, it's something that will become needed, but it's not common currently. So a lot of other municipalities don't have any wildlife feeding bylaws. And I get phone calls from people all over the lower mainland saying, hey, my neighbor's feeding raccoons, dog kibble, what can I do about it? And unfortunately, the answer commonly is not a whole lot unless they're violating another bylaw um, by leaving garbage outside or something like that. So I think hopefully this will kind of shock everybody into a shift um, that it's a really important issue and we need to consider it in the way we live in society. All right. Nadia, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Uh, Great to talk to you again. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. We are talking a bit more about what the Park Board is looking at this evening. It has to do with people who feed wildlife in city parks and stricter, stiffer fines for people that are caught doing that. John Irwin joins us now, a Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jill. Nice to talk to you this afternoon. You too, and I know this is an issue that a lot of people are watching and wondering what's going to happen next. So what exactly is the Park Board voting on this evening? Well, we're basically voting to add, uh, you know, right now the the current provincial bylaws only apply to dangerous uh, wildlife, and then there's a list of them, you know, cougars, bears, uh, coyotes, etc., and uh, we're just we're going to change that to not feeding any wildlife at all. Uh, and then the other plan is to is to you know at least make the fine five hundred dollars uh, to start and hope that that deters people from uh, both leaving food behind and and feeding um, feeding the animals in this case the coyotes. And when you say five hundred dollars to start, does that mean it, it could be if somebody say is a, is caught doing this over and over again, or or it's a particularly uh, that's uh, they've uh, they've left a ton of food out or what whatnot that they could face a bigger fine? Yeah, that and that's what we have to do as a follow up. So we're going to start out with uh, this amount or whatever amount we decide as a board. Uh, is appropriate today. Uh, staff has recommended 500, and then if that's not working and we're getting a lot of repeat offenders, we can go back and uh, and add uh, you know a stiffer fine for repeat offenders, which is what some uh, municipalities have done across the country. Uh, what about enforcement? Are there enough officers or park rangers? Are they going to be given the power to, to give out these tickets, or how are we going to enforce this? Yeah. I, they'll be given the power to enforce it. And then, you know, unfortunately we may have to pull them, you know, like concentrate our, our effort there uh, to get this, um, you know, it's, it's, I would argue it's a pressing issue when people are getting bitten and children are getting bitten. Um, you know, so we got to be on top of this one. So we, we might have to move some of the resources there or look at, uh, you know, adding more Rangers through the budget process. Uh, do you know how many Rangers there are currently? I think there are, you know, I don't want to give you a specific number, but I, I think there's definitely less than 20. Yeah, Less than 20. And as it stands right now, I, it's my understanding, a park ranger cannot issue the ticket. Yeah, uh, I think that's the case. If they can't issue the ticket for uh, feeding wildlife, that's a provincial conservation officer um, jurisdiction. Right. So, and that's something then the park board can make that change? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. How many officers then do you think are needed? If there's currently, or sorry, rangers, if there's currently less than 20, is there a number that you think or that the park board has as far as how many are, ne- are will be needed? So I think we'd have to, you know, see, like my hope is that with signage and with, you know, a fine works as a deterrent. It's, you know, the same, same way the, uh, you know, the police can't catch every speeder on the street, but that every speeder goes, oh, I'm going to get a fine and if my demerits add up know it's going to threaten my license that it that it it moderates the behavior just by by the presence of the fine um but we you know we may need more uh you know more rangers so we'll have to have staff report back to us as we roll this out 
Right. Um, and as far as wildlife, just to, to clarify as well, this will be all wildlife. We were talking with, um, with uh, Nadia, with the Stanley Park Ecology Society just before this. Um, she was talking about some of the issues with even feeding ducks, with people feeding raccoons. So this will be all wildlife? That's right. It'll be all wildlife. And, you know, the logic behind that is sometimes people leave food behind, which, you know, other uh, species like coyotes would eat. And then also, you know, just in terms of general overall health of other species, um, you know, people might think they're doing a favor to the species by feeding them. But usually there's a period during the year where they're not fed. And then they also have to relearn how to how to eat, you know, the the natural food that's in the system. Right. So it's, right. it's not I think people think they're helping other species by doing this, but they're not actually helping Right. And uh, it's good, I think, and people will applaud that this is up for, for voting on this evening. But why did it get to the point where there were more than 40 attacks on humans and we had to, to see conservation go in and euthanize these coyotes? Why didn't we make these changes before? Yeah, that, that's a valid question. I think that, that sometimes, you know, when you're involved in a situation that comes on pretty quickly, you know, and, and I would argue that the number of people in the park uh, with COVID, you know, and the number of people spending time in the park and eating more food in the park, you know, probably changed things considerably from previous years, right? So so I think it, it did uh, sneak up on us a bit, but, you know, um, you know we're, we're acting now and, you know, it's arguable that we could act more timely. Right. Uh, do you have any concerns that there's a population living in the park that won't be deterred by higher fines or bylaw tickets? A population of people? Mm-hmm. Or, um, not necessarily, because, you know, any people that were, um, you know, living rough in the park, they've, they've been there for, for a while, right? So, um, you know, and, and that's another thing that we'll have to we'll have to use, um, you know, um, public education and work our way through, right? So, so I'm hopeful that, you know, the, the call's been done and that that part will be effective and now it's about prevention. All right, uh, Commissioner Irwin, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for taking the time with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. And I just want to say, you know, that my, uh, you know, I do feel for the people who, who had children and themselves attacked, you know, that that's, that's a very hard thing to go through, and I wanted to, you know, say that I feel for them. Thank you. All right, that is John Irwin, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Well, the organizers of an annual event in Vancouver, one that puts thousands of dollars into the pockets of people who collect things from bins in the city, well, they are raising concerns after saying they were forced to change venues at the last minute. It's disappointing. Uh, When you consider an event like this and the impact that it has uh, in the community, it really is disappointing that there wasn't a solution that could have been found, especially when you consider that something like this was avoidable uh, with maybe just a little bit more planning, a little bit more communication from the park board. I have no doubt that organizers, you know, could have figured something out. I also think it raises questions uh, about green spaces in our communities and who are they for? Are they just going to be available to the highest bidder depending on the event that comes along? That was the voice of Nadia Chumi, a spokesperson with Union Gospel Mission. We're joined now by Sean Miles, who is the director of the Vancouver Binners Project, to talk more about this. Sean, thank you so much for being with us. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us what happened as far as this event was planned. It was going ahead. What happened? For sure, yeah. This uh, this event is one that's been running since 2014, with the exception of last year during the pandemic. And we went through our typical planning process. We applied for a permit back in July and, and uh, had it, uh, as far as we knew, approved and paid for. And we're uh, deep into the um, postering and advertising of the, the event uh, when a couple weeks ago, with a, just four weeks until the event date, uh, we were informed by park staff that uh, our permit had been cancelled um, due to the filming of a major motion picture in Victory Square, which was our typical location. Uh, and, and yeah, there was no discussion of it. It was just this was this was happening, and, and we were forced to very quickly regroup and, and determine what we were going to do. And, and um, you know, luckily with the, the team that I have, I'm, I'm grateful for that we were able to kind of make an adjustment. But it has had an impact on our ability to to run this event and. And obviously, um, the the potential impact to to binners who would be attending this event. When you get the permit, and like you said, this has been happening at the Victory Square, the Canby and Hastings intersection, that park since 2014. Mm-hmm. So, when you get the permit, is there anything that you know of on it that says it's 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 um, subject to change, or you could be bumped? Yeah, there there is, and and I think um, the, I'm sure the Parks Department will will also confirm this that that it, permits are essentially given as conditional permits. Um, that there's potential that at any point some city-related event or something might require the permit to be cancelled. Um, and and while there's an under general understanding, and we have an understanding of that, it, you know, the the reason that it was cancelled in this case is what really we have the issue with is that it was for uh, some a, a group of a production company coming into the community um, with with really li- very little notice uh, to take up that space. Because it kind of gives you the impression, I would imagine, that if you've got more cash, you're willing to pay more for a permit, that's, that's going to bump out a group like you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I do actually believe in from conversations I, uh, that we've had with the parks team that that uh, film is actually given a different timeline when it comes to uh, confirming locations than general other groups or community organizations uh, typically require about an eight-week time frame, whereas film only requires four weeks. So there's already that piece of, of equity and, and questions there that we are trying to raise. And again, we're, we've moved forward with planning an alternate location, and I think really we just want to ensure that these types of things don't happen in the future. And if there's ways community can be involved in conversations about how to how to more equitably use public space. Right. So are you concerned, though, even going ahead with another space? Are there concerns that that change of venue won't get that information won't get to everyone? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, the, the community that we work with, binners, um, are typically, you know, uh, hard to reach at times. And, and that's why we t- try to start postering and, and you know, doing outreach early and, uh, you know, with usually about six weeks ahead of the event to, to really make sure we get as many people um, uh, on board and knowing about the event. And, and you know, I, we fully expect that on the day we are going to have binners showing up at Victory Square, just hearing that it was happening that day and assuming it's there because it's, that's where it's always been. Uh, and we're hoping to try and mitigate that as much as we can. But we, we recognize that there, it's very likely just even with the, the change and the way we've had to kind of adjust uh, what we're doing, that we're going to miss people and we're going to have people who are fr- 
frustrated and, and, and maybe even miss that window of time that they're able to come and collect or to, to bring their cups into the depot. Right. Will you do something then? I, I would imagine, though, if it's a film shoot, you might not even be able to put up signage or, or have people there to direct people to the, the other venue. Yeah, we're, we're hoping to be able to have something. And we're, we are working with um, with parks on that, especially, and then hoping to, to and maybe even get some of the park staff to, to, to support that work. Um, uh, but yeah, we don't know exactly what the state, the space will be in, how accessible it will be in. I think they are filming in not just the park, but in the, the streets surrounding it. So it, it is going to be, um, interesting to see what, what that interaction not, uh, looks like and, and, and potentially, um, hopefully, uh, see as little, uh, impact on, on the event in our community as possible. And can you talk a little bit more uh, about the event? I know we touched on this, but yeah. what exactly is going to be happening? What is the coffee cup uh, revolution? Yeah, so so primarily it's an advocacy event as well as uh, an income opportunity for for binners. Um, but really, it's it's highlighting the fact that there are so many coffee disposable coffee cups that are currently um, going into landfills that could be diverted into the recycling streams. And um, binners are very well positioned and, and able to help support that work if it were to, say, be moved to a refundable system, similar to bottles and cans um, that we already have. And so essentially the Coffee Cup Revolution is a, is a, is a depot. It is, it is a recycle depot for coffee cups. One day we run it. And um, we also run it alongside that, usually some community roundtables where we're engaging with the community on related issues, talking about the informal economy, um, the, the circular economy, those types of uh, things. And that's usually binners and community members um, talking together. But typically, you know, uh, we didn't run this event last year, but the year before, we were uh, just shy of uh, 100,000 cups that we we uh, collected through through the three and a half hours that the depot was open, and we're expecting, especially since we bumped up the um, the deposit to 10 cents, which mirrors what the province has, has changed for the recycling depots. Um, we're expecting to be close to, if not surpassing that number, or we were expecting that. And I think that's the reality is, is we don't know, especially with the change of location, what impact that's going to have on, on those numbers. So it could potentially, though, be a, a pretty big day. I would imagine uh, people that take part in this probably have already started or, or do they collect the cups on an ongoing yeah. basis to, to yeah, be part we, of this. We do, yeah, we do uh, hear from some of our members who've been collecting for months or even some who've been collecting since last year when we had to cancel the event. Um, so absolutely, we see, uh, you know, we do see um, some of the binners who will make $300, $400 on that one day um, just collecting uh, a lot of cups and, and, and bringing them in. And we, we don't put a limit on on people as far as how many they can bring in. We put a cap on how many they can deposit at one time and then they have to go line back up again just to kind of keep the line flowing. Um, but essentially, you know, people can collect as many as they want and bring them in. And we're, we're hoping and budgeting to, to be able to provide um, refunds to all of them, who, all those who come. And I get what you're saying, too, about the, the permit, that it does say on it that it's a conditional permit. But the optics of this don't look great either, that we have people who are quite vulnerable that are looking forward to this, that have been collecting cups, that are counting on getting this refund money. And there's the mm-hmm. potential they're going to show up. And instead of the event they're expecting, there's going to be a big flashy film shoot going on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely. And that's part of, again, why we wanted to just really raise this as something to be a, a larger and broader conversation about 
um, how and the ways in which film and, and other um, groups might interact with the community and, and take up those spaces and, and the conversations that should and could happen to either avoid or at least, again, allow for that time to, to adjust. And, and, you know, with more time, I, I think we would have had less impact. We would have been able to get the message out. But with it being just four weeks from, from the date, it really has greatly impacted our ability to, to get that uh, word out to, to the community. So where and when is it going to happen now? Yeah, so it's going to happen on uh, October 7th which is a Thursday, and we're doing it at Oppenheimer Park, which is, a, you know, obviously another uh, park in the community, that, uh, but uh, a little different. And, and our depot runs from 11 till 2, and we're also doing roundtables, which will start at, uh, I think, 11.30 and go to uh, 1.30, and those are open to the public. Anyone is welcome to, to attend those, and um, there's an Eventbrite link, or an Eventbrite you can kind of look at for, for details on that. Was there an added cost to you then as far as had you printed flyers already and had material for it? Absolutely, yeah. So we're looking at, um, and just just in kind of overall cost, probably about a $5,000 additional cost for um, the, the adjustment in, in those kind of material costs, absolutely, as well as additional um, staff time for, for, for the binners. We, we typically try to give them the opportunities to do the postering and things like that. So reposting the areas that we had previously postered, um, additional outreach, as well as the we're quite a small core staff team, and so we've had to work some some overtime as a result of this. Um, we're also mindful that we're doing it at Oppenheimer, and we are going to do it on the grass. So so you know, getting mats so that we're not damaging the grass at Oppenheimer, and again trying to uh, impact the community as little as possible with this event um, in, in any kind of a negative way. So, yeah, that's what we're kind of looking at right now is it's probably going to be about $5,000 that it's going to, to cost us additionally to, to make this adjustment. Hmm. Well, thanks so much for joining us to talk about yeah. this. Uh, it, it, interesting, and I, and I know a lot of people will, will look at this as well and wonder how many uh, does this happen all the time, or, or why your event is the one uh, yeah. that's been bumped. But uh, keep us updated on this. Yeah. And Sean, thanks so much for your time today, and thanks for your interest. Let's check in with the BCSBCA. They are putting on a pretty interesting event. It is half-price adoptions for a specific period of time. So let's find out why this is happening. Lori Chordick, General Manager of Community Relations at the BCSBCA, joins us now. Thanks so much for taking the time with us. Oh, well, thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So half-price adoptions, what prompted this? Well, sometimes throughout the year, we will do our half-price adoptions, and that's because our shelters are getting very, very full. In this case, um, right now, we're seeing a lot of um, what we call large-scale animal intakes, and those are animal cruelty investigations involving large number of animals. That might be a hoarding situation or some other case where there's just a lot of animals coming into our care. And so what we're trying to do is um, provide an incentive if people are thinking about adopting to encourage them to come down and see the wonderful animals in our care so that not only can we find great homes for the animals we currently have, but we can create space so we can help some other animals who urgently need to get out of vulnerable situations. All right. And are we talking about all kinds of animals that the SPCA is involved with? We are. We have dogs and puppies, cats, kittens, rabbits, small animals. We have farm animals. Uh, 
So whatever people are looking for, uh, we have just incredible animals. And, you know, the animals in our shelters and in our care, they're there through no fault of their own. They're great animals. They're just there because people either couldn't or wouldn't look after them. So we really encourage people, if they are thinking of adding a pet to their family, to really um, look at our website, see the animals there, and consider providing that forever home. And I am not personally in search of a horse, but I understand (laughs) are horses exempt, though, from this? They are. They're the only animals that are exempt from that, but every other animal in our care. So if you're looking for a hamster or an emu or anything in between, uh, those are all included in the promotion. All right. What do you look for then as far as obviously a good home, a loving home, a home that's a good fit with the animal? But what's the process like for somebody maybe that hasn't gone through that before and is looking at adopting a rescue? Well, the process is that people can go up on our website and every animal that's available for adoption, their photo and their description is there. And then we have an online adoption process or application so people can just fill in their information and send that in. And then our branches will contact them uh, to let them know if, um, you know, if it's a appropriate match to come and arrange a meet and greet with the animal. We've had during COVID, we've moved to that online system just for everyone's health and safety. So people make appointments to come in and meet animals at the moment. Um, And really with our adoption process, it's certainly not a matter of deciding if someone is, uh, you know, good enough to adopt an animal. That's not the case at all. It's really, we want to make sure that these relationships last. And so it's kind of like a counseling, half dating service kind of thing where we want to make sure that we know what people are looking for in an animal in terms of their lifestyle and how much time you know they can give to an animal and then matching that with the personalities and um, just the temperaments of the animals in our care so that you know if an adoption is made we know that it's got a really good chance of being a successful successful long-term relationship. Right. Do you do you know how many kind of failed adoptions or is there a kind of a, a percentage roughly that, that people unfortunately do return their animals? We actually have very, very low return rates. I think it's under 5% of animals that are returned. But we always want, I mean, if, if uh, something is, if a situation is not working out, we would much rather people come back to us and um, we can take care of that animal again. There's no shame in that if a situation doesn't work out as planned. But we try to do a lot of the work up front to give people the greatest chance of success with their adoption. Uh, I'm looking on the website right now as we're speaking about this, and you're right, there are, I'm looking at William, the rooster, there are a bunch of rabbits as well, guinea pigs. Uh, what For animals like that, that maybe people have not had before or are curious, are there scenarios where rabbits, especially, I guess, are they indoor animals? Or do, you, do you have to have a certain amount of space to make sure that the animal is comfortable? Yes, and animals, you know, many people are perhaps more familiar with cats and dogs, and that's why we also have on our website all sorts of animal care information and just information about what's involved with a guinea pig, what's involved with a rabbit, so people really know what they're getting. For example, with rabbits, because they are prey animals, they're not that comfortable being lifted up and held and cuddled, so if that's what you're looking for in a pet, maybe a rabbit's not the best 
one for you, but for other people, the rabbit would be a perfect pet. So really encourage people also to look in our rest of our website where we have a lot of information about types of animals, what they need, what you can expect from them, and their care needs. All right. What does it mean, though, when we're when we're talking about 50 percent off a half price of the adoption fees? What are the fees? Well, they range from community to community. Here in Vancouver, they can range from uh, $400 for an adult dog to $15 for a small animal or bird. But we actually lose money on our adoption fees, even at full price. Um, our adoption fees are um, supported by our, our donors uh, because they include spay-neuter, uh, microchip, uh, full vet exams, um, all the treatments they would need, um, uh, pet insurance uh, for the first six weeks and a certificate for uh, initial vet visits. So there's a lot of things that are included in the adoption fee that we actually don't make any money on our adoption fees. They just go to offset the care of our animals. Right. That makes sense. Um, you mentioned, too, that a lot of animals have come in because of animals or large scale seizures of animals that have been in, in unfortunate situations. There was a concern that there may be animals showing up that were pandemic animals and as people go back to the office maybe have realized it wasn't a good fit. Have you seen any of that? Well thankfully we haven't seen it here in BC. We've certainly heard that happening um, quite a bit um, throughout the United States and little pockets of, of other places in Canada but we didn't see that. If anything our rate of surrendered animals and returned animals went down. So, um, but again, we did a lot of work when we were adopting animals out the past year and a half to make sure that it wasn't just a spontaneous decision. Because I think a lot of people were seeking out animals because, you know, they were lonely and it just provided wonderful companionship. But we wanted to make sure people did understand that this is this is a big commitment you're taking on with an animal. You owe that animal for the rest of their life to make sure that they're well and healthy and happy. So we did a lot of um, upfront counseling with people to understand you know, what they were taking on to make sure it wasn't just a, a quick decision that, you know, if their circumstances change that, you know, they just uh, bring the animal back. Right. Are you also looking then as far as shelters being uh, a bit crowded, are you also looking for people to sign up or to become fosters? We always need foster homes. Those are just, um, they're the guardian angels of our system. So if people are interested in fostering, we really encourage them to go to our website and look for the information there. Because the more foster homes we have, the more animals we can take in. So, um, you know, just increasing our capacity means that uh, we can help. There's just so many animals out there that need help. And those foster homes just make it possible to help many, many more animals. All right, Laurie, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it.